All right, well, good morning. My name is Elizabeth Melvin. I am excited to be with y'all. Um, I have been at Hope for about 10 years, and I've been on the women's shepherding team for four, I think. Uh, my husband and I have been married exactly eight years because our anniversary was yesterday. So I know exactly how long we've been married. Um, we have two little girls, Rosie and Molly. They are five and three. And I taught third grade for a long time before moving here. And then I taught fifth grade once I moved up here. And so I love to teach. So I'm really excited to be up here with y'all. Um, we're going to start with just a little bit of silence so we can all kind of settle our hearts. I know CMS has early release. It's easy to just kind of be on the go, but let's just kind of sell our hearts for a few minutes. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that where two or more are gathered, you are there. You have many more than two here. We have such a wonderful group of women in this room from all three sites. People that aren't even part of Hope are here, and we're just so thankful that for everyone's here and everyone that's listening, Lord. I just pray that you would calm our hearts and just open our minds and our hearts to your word. I pray that we would have new eyes to see a passage we've read so many times, Lord. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak and to teach, and I just pray that I could share what I've learned as much as I can also share from my heart, Lord. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Um, so I'm going to begin with the Lectio, and there should be a few copies on every page, or on every table. <clears throat> it's from John chapter 19, verses 25 through 30. So either follow along with the handout, or you can find it in your Bible. And today, um, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, it's just the women at the cross. This is the crucifixion. And the first time I read through, I want you all to try to think of a word or phrase that catches your attention. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother 
and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, I'm going to read it again. And this time you are trying to notice the character of Jesus and where you see both his humanity and his divinity. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, last time I'm going to read it, we're using our imaginations. Um, Just let your imagination kind of lead you or lead to questions, engage your five senses. Um, How does your body posture feel? Think about how you might react to being with Jesus at the cross. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
All right. Like I said, I'm Elizabeth Melvin, and I'm just really looking forward to teaching. And I have been for a long time. It's fun to um, be here each week and just hear the build of each person's teaching and what they've learned. I love that I'm following up um, or following after Laura. She talked about Jesus turning water into wine last week. And it was just interesting to see how that informed what I wanted to say. And it's just been a gift to hear everyone. And I just, I love sitting in the passage that I've been sitting in and that y'all just got to read. Um, I mean, I feel like I have to narrow down because there was just so much that came from it. So the questions that I have, this is kind of how we're going to track with this. My first question is, who are all these Marys? I just wish there had been more creativity in biblical times with naming. I mean, I would start getting so excited about some Mary connection, and then I would find out it's not the same Mary, and like scratch out all my cool notes that I was going to share with you all, so not the same Mary. Um, So we're going to look at the three Marys, um, and then we're also going to talk about who is at the cross, but then what I found was so interesting with who was not there at the cross, so we'll talk a lot about that. Um, how does Jesus treat these women, even while he's on the cross? He is still interacting with his mother, uh, specifically. And then, just as we kind of wrap up, I want to talk about those final moments on the cross when he declares that it is finished and kind of what that means for us. Um, so, beginning with the Marys. So many Marys. First one, Mary, mother of Jesus. So that is the Mary we probably all know the best. She was married to Joseph. Um, They lived in Nazareth, and Jesus was her firstborn son. And she had four other sons and a few daughters. We don't know exactly how many daughters. So Jesus had quite a few siblings. He was one of at least six or seven, if not more. Um, So that's Mary number one. Mary number two is the wife of Clopas. This was Jesus' aunt through marriage. And I think her husband's name was also Joseph. I mean, I just don't... I. I don't have much to say about her. I feel like that gets too confusing. But she was part of um, the group of people who would follow Jesus in his ministry. Um, I think in my head, and maybe it's just from childhood and just thinking, it was just Jesus and the 12 disciples. No, I mean, it was a group of people who were traveling with him and witnessing his miracles. And a lot of these women were taking care of needs. Um, but it was very much an entourage. So she was in that group. Um, And then Mary Magdalene, who I'm actually glad that she was there. And I've learned so much just even preparing for this. So Mary Magdalene, you have probably heard a range of things, but a lot of them aren't even necessarily true. A lot of them aren't even from the Bible. Um, So she's first mentioned in Luke chapter eight as a woman who um, Jesus cleansed or he cast out seven demons from her. Um, And I would think that the demon possession affected her reputation. I mean, probably not a great thing to be said about you, but there's so much more that we associate with her. And I don't know if you do, but things that I've heard along the way, I don't know if any of you have heard that she was secretly married to Jesus. That's a weird rumor. It's also from the Da Vinci Code. So just don't let, you know, Da Vinci Code inform what you think about Jesus, but that was thought of long before the Da Vinci Code. A lot of people think that she was a prostitute, and that is nowhere in Scripture. It's just not based in Scripture at all. So I did a kind of a deep dive. I won't go too much into it, but I just wanted to know how did she get that reputation, and um, 
So in 591, there was a pope named Pope Gregory, and he preached a sermon implying that she was a promiscuous woman. And from that point on in history, those things were linked. And so if you, I don't know if any of you are art history majors out there, but in a ton of artwork, she is portrayed wearing red. And that symbolizes promiscuity, sin, uh, you know, something's not quite right about her. And I just thought that was so interesting. It just took that one pope and he kind of turned the tide on Mary. Um, What we actually do know about her that is based in scripture is that she had demons cast out of her. So we do know that she was a female disciple. Um, She was present at the cross and she was the first person to see the empty tomb on the third day. So we get, you know, we think, oh, Jesus was being so sweet to this woman and I mean, I'm sure she's like, guys, come on. Pope Gregory, what are you doing? Making me sound bad. So just so I just found that fascinating to actually take the time to try to um, base things in Scripture. So those are the three Marys that we see at the cross. Um, And then my next question, who is at the cross and who is not? And so we see the three Marys. We also know the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, who wrote the book um, with the Scripture that I chose. Um, and then the people who weren't there, y'all, 11 of the 12 disciples were not there. 11 of the 12. John was the only one that was there. Didn't know that either. I mean, I think I thought, I knew Peter. He was scared. He denied Jesus. You know, I knew a few of them weren't there, but I didn't realize none of them were there other than John. Um, and then the other part I found so interesting, and this was part of the reason I asked about birth order is that none of Jesus's brothers or sisters were there either. Um, And as I dug into that more in scripture, I was actually initially tipped off. There's a speaker I love named Paige Benton Brown, and she's teaching through James this spring. And so she introduced James. This was probably a month ago. And she just kind of casually says, oh, you know, James, he was the brother of Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus during his lifetime. And then Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, and he became a follower of Jesus. Then he wrote the book of James. He became an early church leader. But she's just saying it like we all know that. And I'm pretty sure there's a disciple named James, and I just had always associated the book of James. Just thought, you know, James was a disciple, decided to write a book. No, this was his brother who didn't even believe in him, who did not. I mean, there's so much scripture about his family not being like he performed a miracle in Nazareth. No one in his family came. Where did they all live? Nazareth. Didn't take the time to show up. He was probably their crazy brother. I mean, they're like, sorry, Jesus, we grew up with you. We're good. Don't want, don't want to witness any more weirdness. Um, so I just found that fascinating. And I learned a lot about James and it's my favorite book of the Bible. So just the powerful, I just think that's such a powerful thing that um, he spent maybe the first half of his life, thinking his brother was not who he said he was. And then I would think a post-resurrection appearance would be pretty convincing. You know, kind of like, do you believe me now? And James is like, yes, okay, I'm on board. Um, But it just got me thinking about family of origin, birth order. I was a psychology major, so that's kind of my thing. Oh, my goodness, please do not tell me. Okay, good. Sorry, guys. I think this happened to Cindy Bolton, too. There's a blank page in between. I'm like, did my printer not print my notes? Sorry, people listening for my freak out. Um, so just the people who were in the Bible, they weren't 
I think taking the time to prepare for this and think about it, they were complicated people. They were in families. They got jealous of their siblings. They probably had favorite siblings. They probably didn't like being the youngest or they didn't like being the oldest. I mean, they were people in families. Um, so I just love thinking about them as more emotionally complicated people. Uh, so I've always enjoyed thinking about birth order, but it was interesting to think about it through the lens of scripture. You think about Cain and Abel. Right from the beginning, two brothers. What did they have? A birth order struggle. Oldest and the youngest. We see Esau and Jacob, birth order struggle. Oldest and the youngest. Who's going to get the blessing? We see Leah and Rachel, sisters, birth order struggle. Uh, prodigal son. We've got the older brother who's always doing the right thing. We have the younger brother who's messing it up and still gets the blessing that the older brother gets. So it's just it was interesting to find this in other... Um, parts of the Bible. But I was thinking, and just take a second, this is where the imagination piece is so helpful as we think about things. I mean, just think about being Jesus's sibling. I mean, really, just take a second and think about that. Um, But first, I want to do a little show of hands. And if you're listening, you'll do this with your small group. Um, But who in the room is a firstborn? Show of hands. Got a lot of firstborns. Okay, middle... Okay, youngest, a lot of oldest and youngest. Anyone an only child? Okay, so we have a few only children. Um, But, so I'm oldest, oldest of three girls. Very, very typical for a sport. I mean, I'm like, I remember learning about it in psychology and being like, oh, wow, I think they watched my family my whole childhood. I mean, this is me. So I love helping. I love teaching. I love noticing things that you might not be doing very well, and I would love to help you with that. And um, so I got a lot of practice with that. I feel like my mentality, I was thinking about this, was like, mom can't see everything that's going on. I'm just going to help out because she's so busy, and I'm just going to help her raise these girls. And my sisters would tell me all the time. I mean, they're so I'm two years older than the middle, then four years, and they would say all the time, I don't need another mom. And I would just be like, but you kind of do. I mean, I didn't actually say that. It would actually, that was kind of their comment that would kind of help me to realize what I was doing. But very much an oldest. I feel like now that we're adults, I'm able to let that muscle relax a little bit. But um, Jesus was legitimately, like you might've thought, oh, my oldest sibling is perfect. He legitimately was a perfect older brother. Okay, like that, I just can't even imagine what that would have been like because I I think now as I parent I've got two girls and when they compare themselves to each other I'll be like you know girls everybody makes mistakes we all need grace Rosie makes mistakes you just don't always see them or Molly doesn't always I mean what do you do when Jesus is the oldest you're like I know guys it is just gonna be one of those things like he is just gonna be perfect I mean I don't I just don't really know what you do with that and how that would affect your relationship with him. It's like you want to be close to him, but I don't know. I just would be curious what it would have been like. Um, and then also, it's not like Jesus. I mean, y'all have probably noticed this too. He is not, his actions are not always straightforward. He often does things that seem kind of out there. Um, and this one pertains to his childhood. And I just love this because I feel like as a mom or a sibling, I would have been so mad. So in Luke 2, It's the story of Jesus being found at the temple. So they all travel for a full day to Jerusalem to go to the temple for the Passover celebrations. 
Um, and Jesus was roughly 12 years old, so sixth grade boy. And for those of you with sixth grade boys, you probably don't think of them as your most reliable child. Like, that's not the age where we're like, you know, my sixth grade son, and I don't clearly have a sixth grade son, but as a teacher, I'm like, I didn't think of my fifth grade boys as like, okay, you're good. Like, I don't have to look out for you. No, no, no. We, we were still in process. Um, so they travel. They travel a full day home. They realize Jesus is not with them. He has not come home. And if you think that sounds weird, how could they be missing Jesus? He was one of six or seven, but that can't be that hard. It was, they would travel in large groups. So I think there was an assumption that, of course, he came with the group. He didn't. They have to go back to Jerusalem. So I'm assuming full family. I mean, maybe someone stayed back. We don't know. Um, It takes three days to find him in Jerusalem. He is in the temple. And so they come, Mary and Joseph come. Son, we're so worried about you. Where, where have you been? And he just says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Like a 12-year-old saying that. I just, when you read that, can you imagine being the mom or the sibling that's like, really? I mean, I would have been. But then if you're his mom, what do you do? You're like, okay, I should have known. Like, this is your real home. This is your father's house, the temple. Should have put that together, Jesus. I'm so sorry. My fault. Like, what do you do when he annoys you, when he frightens you, when he doesn't come home because he wants to be in his father's house talking to the synagogue leaders. I mean, that's bizarre behavior, but it's perfect at the same time. So I just think when I thought, when I read that story, I just thought, I wonder what that felt like for his family, but then also Jesus, he's probably feeling misunderstood. I mean, once again, just really interesting family dynamics to think about. Um, so I know that not all, I've, I am speaking from the perspective of being a mother, but I want this to be relatable to everybody. So just in the room, I just thought of a list of things we could all be and yet still be around children or still have a mothering heart. So you could be a wife, a mom, an aunt, a godmother, a teacher, a mentor. You could have neighbors with kids that you love playing with. Um, you could be friends with a woman whose children you love, like your own. Um, you might be unfortunate to sit by the baby on the plane, and you got to figure that out. Uh, but we're all around kids, um, and we all have moments of having that mothering heart in us become aware of things. So just something for y'all to keep thinking about with your tables and discussing that, what it would have really been like to be um, Mary. Um, so that was kind of the first part of our passage, we talk about those three women, um, but the other birth order part that I thought was so interesting too was when Jesus is on the cross and he is telling, when he's saying woman, and Laura referred to this last week and I think one other woman uh, referred to this, when he's saying woman, it's not a term of disrespect. So when he is saying, behold your son, he is speaking about John. Um, And when he is saying, John, behold your mother, I mean, think about why that needed to take place. Jesus is the oldest in his family. So we're assuming Joseph is no longer alive. So it's Jesus' responsibility as the firstborn to care for his mother. He is on the cross. That is not going to be something he's able to do. None of his brothers, we're we're just going to make that assumption, I think, pretty safely. None of his brothers are in a position to either want to care for Mary 
are able to care for Mary, but I would just think there's got to be some kind of estrangement there where maybe they think Mary has chosen Jesus. Um, We don't know, but the fact that none of them are there and that Jesus, even as he's in this deep agony, is needing to care for his mother. I just, that's such a powerful thought to me. And it's such a powerful thought thinking of Jesus' heart and how tender he is and how caring he is, that he is in the most extreme agony. I mean, we'll never know what that's like. You can watch The Passion. I know the show Chosen is on. I mean, things where you can try to conjure up a picture of what that would have been like to be in that much agony, but I just find it so powerful that he was in such deep pain but then could still have eyes to see his mom and care for her. Um, So I just think about that. I thought about that a lot as I prepared for this. And I just wonder what their relationship was like. They had to have been very close. I mean, how powerful to have been his mother and how unique that is. He was born of the Holy Spirit. You know, she was the only one that truly got to experience the reality of that in a full way. And I know we have read about that and we recite it. Um, when we say born of the Virgin Mary, but I think of just being alive. There was no scripture at that point. There was no, this was not common knowledge. This was just like that woman who maybe had a baby that's going to be the Messiah, but do we know that? I mean, I just wonder what it would have been like to be her, to know confidently who Jesus was, and yet then go on parenting these other kids at the same time. Um, And I just would imagine that the two of them probably felt misunderstood a lot um, and how to balance their relationship, which I bet was incredibly unique with also being part of a family. Just a really um, powerful thought. Um, And then just thinking about Jesus, I just, I love that his final conversation of his life, he does say it is finished, but that's between him and the father. His final conversation is caring for someone else. And that's just a beautiful thing. Um, so one thing I do want y'all to do, you might notice on your table, there's a small bottle and, um, people who are listening, you'll hopefully your small group leader will give you the chance to, um, engage your senses at their house. But that is a small bottle of red wine vinegar. And so I just wanted y'all to take a second when I was preparing the gin, I just had to say, it's just like, do you want them to drink it? Like, Jesus? I'm like, no, 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 no. Just smell it. It's just there. You don't have to smell it. You can if you want to. But I just think, taking a second, we're transitioning now to the cross. Um, the passage is kind of broken up into the beginning with the women and that interaction with John. And then the second part is his kind of final moments. So um, I loved getting to follow up from Laura because last week we talked about how Jesus created the most, like the best wine possible for that wedding. So his ministry begins with the best possible wine and then his ministry ends with the worst possible wine vinegar. I mean, it's just the spectrum of that I just think is really powerful. So he was offered that to drink. So just take a second, think about whatever your thirstiest moment is and if that's what you have been offered, um, not, not what anyone would want. Um, so one more thing about John that I wanted to say, um, 
And I don't know if all of you have heard the term. I, I, it's on there as a question, so I, I'll explain it if you don't know. But the term family, friends who are like family, is what that means if you haven't heard that. Um, but I just love that Jesus knew what it was like to have family disappoint him. And he knew what it was like to have a family and have friends who became like family. And, the, and just in how he would seek out um, John to take care of his mom. So the two things that I thought about for that, because I'm sure we all have family on some level. And I, the two kind of camps that I think you could fall into, and there can be many other reasons, and you could explore those with your table. But the two that came to my mind were proximity and pain. So proximity being just, we live in Charlotte. A lot of us are transplants from other cities. Um, actually, show of hands, how many did not grow up in Charlotte in this room? Yeah. I mean, if you're listening, it's basically the whole room. Who did grow up here? Okay. We've got some Charlotteans. We've got a few of y'all. Um, so many of us have moved here. I moved here when I got married. Um, I had, I think I'd been here maybe like once, but um, I have moved around quite a bit. I, when I turned 18, I went to college. I went to Wake Forest. I was born and raised in Texas and just was so ready to see. And I thought I'll probably end up here. And so I want to go see the world and, you know, go somewhere else. So I went to Wake, loved that. So my summers in Colorado, um, I lived in DC for a few years, uh, moved back to Dallas for a little bit, but then landed here. So I have made a lot of friends that have become really close knowing that my family is just really far away. And my whole, I'm the oldest of three girls, like I told you, they're both in Dallas. My parents are still there. So proximity is a huge thing for me. I mean, I think of emergencies. My family can't just fly up here. I mean, they will, but if you need someone, you need someone now. I mean, we've had situations that are not too serious, but we've had to take Molly to the ER, you know, and it's like a neighbor is the one spending the night while we go take her and someone's staying with our oldest. I mean, proximity has been such a gift and a huge reason why we have such close friends. They really have become our family in a lot of ways. Um, but it could also be because of pain. You could actually live in Charlotte and not see your family that much um, because it's just too painful. Those relationships could be really hard or they're just not healthy for you to be around them a lot. Um, and I've experienced pain in my own family. There's some things that are a blessing about being far away, if I'm totally honest. Um, so I just love knowing that Jesus understood that part of me and he understands that part of you too, whatever that looks like for you. Whether it's just, so hard to be far away from your family or it's so hard that your family isn't easy to be around. I mean, it could be either way. Um, Jesus experienced that firsthand, which I think is really powerful. Um, so this leads us all to the cross. So Jesus is dying a criminal's death. I mean, this is a, this is a shameful death. I mean, it's like the death penalty, essentially. Um, and you think of our association with that, it's because someone did something horribly wrong. And I mean, not to make it just a blanket thing, but deserves it, if you will. Like the death penalty is usually associated with, with some horrible, horrible crime. Um, and just thinking about that, just take a second and think about that. You smell that red wine vinegar, you know that's what he was actually able to taste when he was on the cross. Um, it's just a really powerful thing, and I love that I'm getting to teach 
around Easter. We're leading into Easter in the next few weeks. Um, so just taking a moment to really think about that. Um, <clears throat> so while he's up there in extreme pain, he takes a sip of that wine. And there was something that I read that I also found really interesting. There was a pastor who talks about the wine that he was offered. So he was offered wine two times. Um, and I did not know about this differentiation. Um, this is Pastor David Mathis. He says the first wine, which is not in the passage I read, so he was offered some earlier. Um, the first wine was mixed with myrrh, and it was designed to dull Jesus's pain or to dull the pain of whoever was on the cross um, to kind of keep him from enduring the cross with the full consciousness. This wine he refused. The second sour wine was given to keep them conscious as long as possible. It was actually to prolong and intensify the pain. Um, and that's what he chose to take. Which I just think, what a contrast. Um, that he would refuse something that could dull the pain. Which, I don't know about y'all, I mean, my husband makes fun of me. He's like, you're such a medicator. I'm like, I'm taking ibuprofen. This is not major medication. But I, if I am in pain, I am very quick to try to take something to calm it down. I mean, just the thought of refusing that and then actually taking something to intensify it. Just that he, he really knew um, what God was calling him to do. And he did not shrink away from it. He did not shy away from it. Um, and I still, I just think such a powerful contrast to what Laura shared last week. Um, so as he's drinking that wine, he declares it is finished. And as we are approaching Easter, I just think about what that implied. I mean, he died for our salvation. He has done the work of salvation. It is finished. It is complete. Um, and such a sweet time to actually reflect on that and to think about what we add to it, because it's so easy to think, okay, it is finished, but I still need to be a part of this salvation concept. Um, so I wrote down a few things, like, it is finished, but I need, I know you need me to keep being the good girl. Like, that's self-righteousness. Like, I need to be a part of earning this. Um, there's still so much that I can't forgive myself for. That would be shame. Um, and then mine, mine embarrassingly is pride. Um, I laughed as I wrote this down, and I have a little story that illustrates it perfectly. But uh, mine is, Lord, we are a great team. We can do this together. Let's go help people together. You see what they're doing wrong. I see what they're doing wrong. We can help them. Like, that is what I think in my head is that firstborn, oldest girl thing going on. Um, so my sister got married in Montana about four years ago. And I was one of the, I was, I guess, matron of honor at that point, along with my other sister. But she had like 10 bridesmaids. And some of them were from high school. Some of them were from college. And they didn't all know each other that well. And so we were getting pictures together. And the photographers were just doing their very best. But it's like they meet you that day. They don't know everyone's names. And we're in this forest in Montana. And the girls are just not paying attention. And I just snap into it. I'm like, okay, Camille, get over here. Okay, you know, I'm like calling other names. They're like, oh, okay. And all of a sudden, the pictures are just going swimmingly. Like, I am just helping out. Like, we are getting these pictures done. And I feel great about it. The photographers even are like, thank you so much. Like, you're so 
welcome. You just let me know what you need. I'm here. And then like 10 shots in or 10 minutes in, they're like, okay, we got it. We're good. Like, we're good. Like, you can, you can stop. Like, we, you know, because I just was in the zone. I'm just like, I can help. I can get, you know, my sister with each girl. Like, I just was really wanting to help out. And um, I was initially. And then they're like, we asked the wrong girl. She's crazy. Um, but, I mean, that story just reflects how I think about, like, it is finished, Lord. But did you see that? Like, I'm, let's work on this. You know, it's just not... Ugh, I hate, hate even saying it. It's just so gross to think of that. But that's what I do. I add to it. Um, and I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit and that he calms that down in me and often takes me in a complete opposite direction of what I was going to do on my own. But I would just wonder what it is for you. What are you adding to um, it is finished? Um, so I want to end with just thinking about the woman at the cross and um, just take a moment, close your eyes for a second. Picture these women standing by the cross. Think about what they heard, what they saw. Um, Just the extreme discomfort of being there. I mean, watching someone die. Oh, I mean, that is heavy. Um, And there's just something so powerful about that visual of those three women staying. Um, They did not leave. They were there for the entire duration of his crucifixion, which was hours long. I mean, this was not a short process. Um, And then those women also accompanied his body to the tomb for burial. So it did not stop once he died. They then continued, and Alex is going to teach about that next week. But I just think about us as women and how we are just drawn to crisis. We, there's something about it and it doesn't look the same for everyone. Maybe some of y'all love sitting and you're okay sitting in the grief with someone. Maybe some of you are like, that is too much for me, but I will show up and do anything you possibly need when you're in crisis. Um, and I was thinking about it from my perspective of being on the women's shepherding team And I just loved thinking about this. When a situation arises, do you know what our biggest problem is? Our biggest problem is that there's too much help. There is too much care. There are too many Starbucks lattes on the porch. There are too many people knocking on the door for hugs. Can I sit with you? The freezers are too full. Like we have to space out the care. I can think of so many situations where it's like, okay, we got to pace ourselves here so that we can you know, care for this person over time. And I've experienced this myself. I mean, the care when our family has been in need, specifically at Hope, has just been unreal. The people who show up with, I mean, there have been women that I didn't even know who just brought something by. It's just there's something in us that wants to do that. Um, And I just love that. What a beautiful problem to have, that we are so drawn to care, so drawn to helping crisis. Um, And there's a word... Jen, you're going to have to help her. Is it etzer? Etzer, okay. So there's a Hebrew word in etzer, or a Hebrew word in Genesis, the word etzer, is described, um, is used to describe Eve to be a helper. And that word might rub you the wrong way. Um, I love being a helper. I'm a two on the Enneagram, so I'm like, oh, great, helper. Um, but that might not sit with everyone the same way. But exploring that word was so powerful uh, because it's a word that was describing 
Eve. And then it also is describing um, the Lord in different passages. Um, And there's one in the Psalms where it talks about, it means to be a helper, to help. And it talks about the Lord being a help. So we are reflecting the Lord's desire to help when we are living into Etzer. So there's a quote I wanted to read. It says, Etzer represents the strength and valor of a warrior. God created women to be warriors. It is not good for the man to be alone. Our brothers need us, and God calls us to join forces with them in advancing his kingdom wherever we are. And I just love that. Strength and valor of a warrior. I mean, that's, you think about warriors, they do not leave until the battle's over. They either lose or they're victorious, but they don't leave. Um, They stay. So I get to finish, this is my last point, with a scene from my favorite movie of all time, Steal Magnolias. I just, I hope you all, I'm actually going to do this, show of hands, has everyone, who, no, I'm not going to embarrass, who has seen Steal Magnolias? I was going to say who hasn't. Okay, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. I am going to be kind and not name the name in this last scene, um, But this movie came out in 1986, so that is on you if you have not seen it, okay? But it's a wonderful movie. It follows the life of six women over probably about five years. Truvy, Anel, Malin, Shelby, Clary, and Weezer. Just, I kind of want to be all of them combined. I just, I just love this movie and I love their friendships. And um, so it's a scene toward the end. And one of the women is standing beside a burial site. And everyone has started to walk to their car. So she's just standing right there at the burial site. And one by one, the, you know, just as you watch the movie, you watch the women look back and kind of motion to their husband or whoever they came with, like, I'm going to go back. So they all head back to stand around this friend. Um, and they just stay with her. They really don't say very much. Anel does. Anel starts chatting, but that if you watch the movie, you'll know why Nell does that, but they just stand with her. They stay with her. They really don't say a lot. Um, Malin has been holding it together for weeks. She, and she finally breaks. Um, this is set in Louisiana. She's been Southern, composed, polite. I'm sure she's heard all kinds of things, you know, like heaven needed another angel or, you know, just things where it's like, no, do not say that. And she's kept it in and she finally just can't anymore and they just stay with her in that moment and they're crying but they're there they are not leaving they're not frightened by her vulnerability um and I rewatched this in order to prepare and I just loved this so Malin she's there she's talking about her time in the hospital she's talking about how she stayed her husband had to leave her son-in-law had to leave And she stayed and she said, I find it amusing. Men are supposed to be made of steel or something. And that's why it's called steel magnolias. These women are steel magnolias. They are strong, but they are tender. And y'all, that is the Lord and that is us. That is us. We get to be steel magnolias. Um, So now you really need to watch it. It's available on any streaming that you need. I checked. So you all need to go back and watch it. And I'll watch it with you if you need a friend. Um... So I just love that thought of that we get to reflect Jesus's strength, but also his tenderness. Um, so on that note, all you steel magnolias, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have some time to chat. 
Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for these women. We thank you that they stayed at the cross. We thank you um, for what they reflect to us and what we got to see in them and through them in this passage, Lord. And we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for what that means to each one of us. And um, we just, I just pray that we can have a deeper understanding, especially as we head into this time of Easter in the next few weeks. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.